thank me this morning for coming in, and I can assure you no thanks is, has ever been less necessary. Wild horses couldn't have kept me away from this event this morning. Um, if you were present at the presentation ceremony for uh, this year's uh, recipients of the Gomes Award, uh, welcome, uh, Betsy, to an honoree this morning. If you were present yesterday, you would be forgiven for walking away slightly puzzled and rolling around in your mind the question, what on earth is in the water at Harvard Divinity School? Or, or is earth the right place to look? Um, what draws such extraordinary people to us? What do we do to them, or for them, or with them, or around them? What do they do in spite of us? What do we do while they're here, and what drives them to accomplish such great things after they leave here? These are important questions for the school to consider as we celebrate our 200th birthday and prepare for another 200 years of leadership and service. What's changing in the world around us? How well prepared are we to react to these changes and, in fact, to lead these changes? How do we not only maintain the relevance of Harvard Divinity School, but build that relevance into our third century? Enter Casper and Angie, for uh, that is how you must refer to them. Uh, they, they've achieved that level of notoriety where last names are no longer needed. Uh, they are Casper and Angie in the same way, I suppose, as Bonnie and Clyde. I don't, you, <laughs> pick, pick, pick your famous partnership to focus on. Um, they're friends, so I want to be careful here, but they embody the best of our heritage, and they are working as hard as anyone I'm aware of to understand how that heritage, how what we bring into our third century connects to the radical changes underway in our society and their implications for spiritual community. In these two amazing young people, I think you see um, what we saw on display yesterday at the head table in the Gomes Awards. These are students who yearn to build and nurture community. They're driven to make sense of the world, both to understand their place in it and to help others to understand their place as well. They have a passion to understand the ground of our being, and they are driven to leadership and service uh, in the fine tradition of this school, and we are proud to have them. I'm proud to have you as colleagues and friends. We are all proud to welcome you this morning. Welcome. Religion is in motion in both of their lives, and they're going to demonstrate that to you now by giving you an overview of the work they've done in two publications called um, How We Gather and Something More, an inquiry into community forming um, all around us that perhaps we don't pay as much attention to as we should day to day. How we want to spend our time, Casper uh, and Angie have agreed to give us a presentation on their work for about, I think, 15 or 20 minutes. Then we'll uh, assume the comfy chairs up here, and I'll ask them some questions, and we'll leave about 25 minutes or a half hour for you all to ask them questions. So please, fill us in on your travels and what you've learned. Thank you, Thank you so much. Um, as uh, Lauren does a quick slide change, and mm. you have your microphone on. I believe I do. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. Um, 
Angie and I met in our Introduction to Ministry Studies seminar uh, just about two and a half years ago in our first year uh, as students. And I can promise you that we did not think that this is what we'd be doing in our final year. So we're, we're so grateful to be here. Um, do you want to lead us in? I sure will. Uh, as Casper said, it is an honor to be here this morning. And so we're going to just do a little bit to try to frame what got us here and where we're at right now so that then that can take us into our conversation with Derek. And to begin that conversation, we've both found that it's always a little helpful to share our personal stories and how they led us both to HDS and to working together. So in my case, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I was the child of a Jewish mother and a Protestant father, but both of whom were unsatisfied with the spiritual content of their upbringings. They'd both been raised in homes where politics and science were more prevalent than the religious depth of their respective traditions. So surprise, surprise, that led them to San Francisco where they, <laughs> where they met and where they encountered this text that most people haven't heard of. It's called the Urantia Book. That's U-R-A-N-T-I-A. -A, and that's something that I usually didn't talk about until I came to HDS, but that has, has been a very formative spiritual text in my life and really was the foundation of the religious home life that I grew up with. So my parents were both artists and they incorporated that creative spirit into our religious life as well. So I grew up with family meetings every Sunday where we would express what we were grateful for and fruits of the spirit and all these kinds of things. But religion was always, relatively speaking, a personal experience in my upbringing. And so by the time I went to college, I went to Brown University, I followed that artistic thing and studied playwriting. And then I spent six years in New York working in the arts, working in nonprofits and doing all kinds of creative collaboration. But I was still without religious community. And that wasn't even really a category that I had considered for myself as something that I yearned for or desired. But the longer that I spent in New York in my 20s, the more hungry I became and the more I went looking. And in the midst of that, I was experiencing this thing over and over again with my peers in the arts where we would come together to bring something into being. Right? We would creatively collaborate in order to put on a play or a music festival or what, what have you. And I would have this feeling of, of being part of something more, of coming together to create and participate in something greater than ourselves. And so I started to wonder if that, if that was something that could be married with actual engagement with the big questions of our existence and coming together in a way that was more explicitly about the spiritual dimension of our lives. And so since I was unchurched as a child, it didn't even occur to me to look to church to find this. And so I started a spreadsheet there in my apartment in Brooklyn, New York, mapping organizations that I could find for myself, a wholly selfish undertaking, that might meet some of those needs in my life. And the more I looked into that, the more I discovered that I was part of a phenomenon, <laughs> that there was this rise in our country of the unaffiliated, of the nuns, as they are called, and that I was part of that rise. And I started becoming so interested in the questions surrounding that phenomenon, around where people were coming together if they did not have a religious community to hold them, that I finally started looking into divinity school. And being the sort of self-professed religious weirdo that I am, <laughs> there was no other divinity school I could find <laughs> that I might even stand a chance of having a home in. And I remember very well coming to Perspective Student Day and sitting down with Dudley Rose, who 
I had this whole idea that I, you know, I would go talk to someone important at HDS and that I was gonna talk about the Arantia book and I was gonna say I was studying spirituality outside of religion and I was really gonna freak them out and see if they would have me. You know, and I say all this to Dudley Rose and in his inimitable, utterly compassionate and thoughtful way, he says, it sounds like that will be truly challenging and I really hope you're on board for it. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess I'll come. Uh, and so I did and the first, you know, our first semester, we all have to do intro to ministry studies and share our spiritual autobiographies and that was where I had the great pleasure of encountering my friend Casper here. So I'll let him pick it up from there. Yeah, it, I was in a very similar situation. I grew up in England. Um, where you know 6% of people go to church on Sunday in England. So it's a very, very different context religiously. Um, and I had grown up in a, a, a Waldorf Steiner school. I don't know if some of you are familiar with that education system, which has lots of public celebrations and kind of um, lots of traditions and songs and all sorts of um, religious elements now that I look back on it through an MDiv lens. But at the time I had no sense of religiosity. Um, I came out in high school and uh, I remember my, uh, the little uh, uh, kind of little Christian fellowship group that I had joined because we got free Kit Kats at lunch. Um, I, I remember Mrs. Fitzsimmons, the maths teacher, making it pretty clear that that was not an okay thing. So at that point, I was like, religion doesn't want me. I don't want religion. We're done. No worries. Um, I ended up being very involved in climate activism. Social justice was, was kind of my, my work uh, while I was in England. But there was always something it was kind of 70% of what I wanted to do. I ended up enjoying bringing people together to sing at the social justice trainings that I was organizing as much as the actual actions that we were doing. And I liked bringing people together and making sure that everyone brought some food and you know all of this kind of stuff, which now I look back on and I'm like, oh yes, ministry, okay. Um, but at the time I had zero language for that. Uh, I came to Harvard to do a public policy degree. Uh, I'm a joint student with the Kennedy School. I thought, you know, I looked at my bosses at Oxfam and WWF and I thought, I don't really want to do what you're doing, but what else is there if not that? Well, I'll go to graduate school and we'll see what happens. So I started my first year in public policy and I was sitting there in the statistics classroom thinking, what am I doing? This is not the right thing. And I kept meeting these really unusual people who said they went to HDS. <laughs> I was like, divinity, what, what is that? Um, do, you, do you become Catholic priests? What, like, what, what is it? Um, and Erica Carlson, a wonderful alum, um, who is a uh, Latina lesbian Buddhist, said, well, people like you can go there. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I remember going to the Center for the Study of World Religions for an event to kind of suss out what's the, what this HDS thing was all about. And I was a little late, so I walked in, and there, sitting on the floor, were about 30 people in, in the dark, holding a candle, chanting, and I was like, I'm in the right place. So, Andy and I met, and, and the first sign of our friendship was that she shared her spreadsheet with me. Um, and so we started adding to this spreadsheet, and, and more and more uh, examples of these organizations that seemed to speak to people like us, um, who wanted community, who wanted some sense of spiritual depth, um, but we're doing it outside of traditional religion. So we kept finding more and more. And that now we have a, a spreadsheet of hundreds of these organizations, and there are so many, everything from um, things like Daybreaker, which is an early morning dance party from 6 to 9 a.m., no alcohol, no drugs, but it's a start to the day like no other. Um, they recently partnered with Temple Emmanuel in New York to try and bring a whole new bunch of people into a religious space, which was a great success. 
Uh, things like the November Project, which started right here in Boston, which was a, a fitness accountability group of two friends who had been in the rowing team at Northeastern together and needed to work out through November. So they said, okay, every morning we're gonna see each other and friends started joining. And now it's a community in over 40 cities around the US. Um, people are running up and down the stairs. And I know Bill Graham's here who does that just about every morning at 5.30. So nothing is new in the world of religion. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, this group is, is fabulous. And you know, once the snow came, they were there digging out cars uh, on, on the hill that they run up and down on. So a whole new set of groups that seem to have some pro-social values that seem to bring people together. But more than any other community that people would talk about in this way was CrossFit. <laughs> Who is familiar with CrossFit? I've just come across that. Okay. Now, one of the reasons why you've heard about it is because people are evangelical about CrossFit. If they're CrossFitting, you're going to know about it. They're going to try and recruit you. So it, it's a workout, but it's much more than a workout. It is a, a community. Uh, Greg Glassman, who is the founder of CrossFit, who we brought here to HDS in November last year, he said it's uh, the combination of agony and laughter. That's what makes this that's what makes CrossFit work. So people are working out together, but they do it so regularly that if you don't show up on the Thursday where you usually show up on, people are gonna call you and say, hey, Angie, where were you? You're supposed to be here. So you have to let your other CrossFit buddies know when you're going on vacation so that they don't give you that call. It kind of sounds like church maybe 100 years ago. Um, so there's all sorts of elements of CrossFit that has, has this kind of religious sentiment. Different workouts are named after different people. So fallen soldiers or police officers will be honored through a workout. So a workout will be called the Deborah or the Matthew. Um, so there's this kind of ritualization of, of grief in some way. The same workout happens in every CrossFit box around the world. By, there are now 15,000 of these gyms. So you have the workout of the day. So just like if you were saying the Lord's Prayer, you know, in this church over there and I'm over here, you're doing three burpees and weightlifts and you know, star jumps as I am over here. So there's this sense of connection across space. Greg Glassman, the founder, talks about um, he doesn't want to build a skyscraper. He wants to shepherd a flock or he wants to tend to an orchard. So there's this kind of very pastoral language that he uses about the people who he has gathered together. And very practically, if you need a ride to the hospital or if you're leaving to move to Ohio and want to have a, a goodbye barbecue, people are hosting those at their CrossFit boxes. So it's really a practical center of the community. People bring their kids. Um, you know, it's a multi-generational space. Often they go out and party and drink and have dinner together. People fall in love. They move with their now husband closer to the box where they met because this is really the center of their community. So this is a, a real phenomenon in terms of how much it means to people. The fitness world is full of these examples, but, but there are others. The Dinner Party is a wonderful organization, one we love to champion. Um, Lennon Flowers, uh, who, who founded it uh, with some friends, had lost her mother and felt this kind of inability to talk about her experience of loss in, you know, at work or with friends. People usually went to the, oh gosh, face. They just, they just didn't know how to engage with it. So she desperately wanted a group of friends who she, she could be honest with about the feeling of you know, anger and sadness and, and just all the things that come with grief. So she started to have dinner with some friends who'd also lost a parent. And people started hearing about it and said, I want that too. So now Lennon runs a network of tables, hosts 
who in their own home will welcome strangers who've also suffered loss of a parent, a sibling, a loved one, to come together and just be honest with each other, just to be real in their language. And so there's, again, all these kind of religious elements, this sense of spiritual accompaniment, of being on a journey, a, a great feeling of healing, um, the small group model for those uh, Methodists in the room, um, and of, of course, Eucharist, you know, this, this gathering around a table. Uh, at least, you know, in, in Christian language, there are so many other examples in, in different traditions as well. And what we found is, is really that people like Lenin, uh, pe other people who have set up these organizations, when, when we interviewed them, because we started calling them after mapping them on this spreadsheet, we said, oh, hi. So, uh, you know, reminds us a little bit of religion. Some of them were like, oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no way. Religion is scary and frightening and dangerous. Uh, and then we would kind of talk to them about what we meant by that. And after a while, they'd say, well, you know, I guess one example was the Millennium Trains Project, which brings people on a, a kind of learning journey around America on a train. They literally travel around. And we said, well, Patrick, it kind of sounds like pilgrimage. And he said, no, 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 definitely not. But we kept talking. And after a while, he said, well, I guess someone did bless the train before it left the station. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, well, that proves our point. So one of the things that really struck us throughout these organizations were their kind of recurring themes, the language, the websites, the, the imagery that they would use, the, the, the kind of um, stories that they would tell were so consistent. That's really what uh, made us write this first copy of a, of a report, which I hope you'll be able to take with you. I know there's copies called How We Gather. And there were these six themes. The sense of social transformation, wanting to do something out in the world, whether it was around justice um, or whether it was around making the world more beautiful, like group muse, which brings classical musicians into people's living rooms to perform in an intimate space. And they're very clear that what they're trying to give people is a chance to reflect on life in the presence of beauty. So it's simple things like that where there's a real desire to do something out in the world. Personal transformation, of course, could be around fitness, could be about intellectual um, growth, it could be around, uh, you know, kind of w wanting to be better at maintaining the commitments I have, all of that kind of stuff. Some sense of personal change. Accountability was a really big theme. Um, so wanting to be held to the promises that I make. So at a, at a CrossFit box, you'll have a whiteboard where you write down your personal best times and the goals that you have so that everyone can see. There's a real public uh, notion to that promise that you're making. The desire to express creativity, the sense of finding your purpose or being able to articulate what you feel that your purpose is. And the largest one for all of this was, was community. And so we so found in the course of thinking about how we gather, getting to know these community leaders, that there was an irony. And it's an irony of leadership that comes up across sectors, but where the people doing this work who were coming up with these ideas, leading these communities, were doing so in isolation from each other. So despite being in the process of fostering community, they didn't have community themselves. And so Casper and I took it upon ourselves to bring them together here at HDS in November. And we were so deeply supported by the administration and the faculty here, which I just do want to point out because this would not have happened without HDS. So we brought together 50 of the leaders of these communities from across the country and even some from other countries who came together primarily to build relationships. We knew that would be important. We also thought we might be able to provide them with a sort of peer-to-peer -peer exchange of skills and wisdom with regard to you know, scaling their organization and things of that nature. We also really wanted to hold up a mirror to the work that they're doing and to what we're learning about ministry. 
for many of them, something that's been very striking and unexpected has been the presence of those six themes that Casper and I discussed. Those, the, the, those and the kind of whole lives that people were bringing into these communities, in many cases, caught the leaders off guard. That was not necessarily what they thought they were getting themselves into. And there are many stories that came out of this. You know, somebody going to a 24-hour makerspace in the middle of the night because that was a place that they could find sanctuary instead of self-harm or something like that. I mean, you know, this sort of getting to the grit of, of being alive. Um, and so here are all these people who don't necessarily understand their work to be ministry or much less have training that might prepare them for that. So we were very um, thrilled to be able to bring together a number of ministers across traditions, leaders across traditions from this area who were able to enter into conversation with these folks about their work and help them to frame it in a way that might further their own ability to be of service in, in that way that, it, as Casper said, it, for many of them is hard to even think about because they have a sort of knee-jerk reaction to identifying their work as religious. So given that, what was extra surprising and exciting to us is that over the course of our days together, increasingly these people who now, they're leading these nominally secular communities, right? These people increasingly were using the language of faith and unbidden. <laughs> um, so that by the end of our time, we did a closing circle, which there's a sort of uh, common practice in activist circles where you talk about hopes, fears, and proud, like leaving this circle, I'm hopeful, afraid, and proud of the following. And person after person rejected the language of hope and replaced it with faith. I have faith that. <laughs> I will, in faith. It was extraordinary. And in the time since then, we have actually been engaging in some deeper interview conversations with each of these leaders because we went in with ideas about what we had to offer them. And coming out the other side, what we've discovered is that what they're many of them are really searching for and in some way thought, even if not fully articulated, that they might find when they came in November was a sense of spiritual community and spiritual practice and spiritual language. And so that is really what led us to write our second report, which we've called Something More. <laughs> and as you may have noticed in all of those six themes, even though we're making comparisons and saying that there are religion-like practices occurring in these communities, there is no reference to that which grounds our being, that which is transcendent, imminent, and that we may find in ineffable ways. And so this was what we really wanted to point to in the second report. In addition to exploring where innovation is actually happening within organized religion. And so we engaged in a second mapping undertaking where we got into relationship and conversation with leaders across traditions who were trying things in new ways. And so we've come to just a really extraordinary uh, set of relationships with communities around the country. Um, a few examples to highlight. You can see at the bottom there's, um, well, I'll start with Relevant, which is a platform that was created to basically just provide a media hub within the Christian world for people in their 20s and 30s and to sort of, uh, you know, it's this millennials doing it for millennials kind of thing of we're going we're gonna to sort of engage with what we actually find to be relevant and, and, in, and specifically uh, invite the divine into our everyday lives and to say, you know, what, what God is doing in our lives is relevant to every facet of our lives and we want to portray that on this platform. What they didn't expect is that the people who were going to that platform 
were so um, hungry for community that they would start using it that way. So for instance, they have a podcast that they run through Relevant, which they had a, a sort of anniversary party for, thinking, okay, maybe like 50 people are show, will show up. 800 people <laughs> flew in from around the country to be part of this gathering, and they were hearing these stories like, your podcast is my church. When I pick up and leave town, I know that, I, that that will be a thread that carries me through, and I feel a sense of connection to the people that I, that I am hearing, the voices that I am hearing every day or every week. Um, Right next to it is Moisha House, which has been a real treat for us to get to know. Some of you may know, may know Moisha House. It's a network of these, of these homes around the country where small groups of, of usually young Jews will get together and live in, their, in each other's company and basically engage in the, the Jewish calendar year and the ritual that is associated with their tradition, but in a way that is very focused on fostering intentional community, and a number of these, we find these same themes of people wanting to be together and live together or be in this sort of geographical proximity. Um, and so we got, the, <laughs> we got the privilege of spending time at the Isabella Friedman Center recently with 50 Jewish innovators from across the spectrum from, we had orthodox, orthodox, reconstructionist, reform, you know, you name it, uh, and to, to, to really discover some of the remarkable innovations. So, you have service organizations like the Laundry Project, you have the Living School for Action and Contemplation, with, which Casper's gotten to know really well, which is through Richard Rohr. Um, but across the board, what we noticed is that these organizations are very adept at engaging with what we termed as the seventh theme in this, in this work, which we call very broadly something more insofar as with their depth of tradition and experience, they're able to really speak into people's lives with whatever language is resonant for them around God or around their own understanding of, of what grounds their being. But what, surpri what surprised us is that there was a lack by comparison in these communities um, of, the, of the other six themes that we had identified in how we gather, that there was a greater emphasis on, on the something more and, and less of a sort of intentionality around some of these other themes. So at this point, some of our hope is that we'll be able to bring together innovators from the secular and religious landscape uh, probably in the fall of this year in order to, to foster further conversation between and among them about how their work might mutually inform and strengthen. So there's a, a couple of quick case studies, which <clears throat> we're really invested in these communities succeeding. So we have had to uh, make very clear that we have no academic integrity in terms of sociological distance from, from these communities. Okay. <laughs> we want them to work. So um, some of, and some of them are doing really interesting things, which are kind of challenging often to the denominational structures in which they would usually live. So Pop-Up Shabbat is a, is a dinner community in Brooklyn, New York, um, led by a, a woman called Dania Cheskis-Gold, who was Jewish, grew up in the conservative tradition, but kind of just edged away a little bit um, as she grew up more and more, ended up marrying someone who was non-religious. And you know, she thought, what is it that I love most about my tradition? Well, it's Shabbat dinners. So why don't I get people together on Friday nights and you know, we'll just have delicious food and good conversation. So the first one happened and you know, 30 people show up, it's great. But about halfway through the dinner, someone's like, when are we gonna get the blessing? And Danya was like, oh gosh, I hadn't thought about that, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of have a go, where's the wine? You know, where, where are the candles? And so she realized actually the invitation needs to be open and broad and welcoming, but people really are wanting depth. 
So that's a really interesting conversation about how she's trying to bring that tradition with a twist, is uh, the way that we've been talking about it. The, 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 the boundary to belonging is, is so um, ineffectual, really, I think, and that's maybe generational, the fact that more of us are growing up with, as HDS now recognizes, multiple religious identities, or, you know, I, I, I definitely um, belong to the Catholic Church, but my practice is Buddhist meditation, or, you know, all those kind of traditional labels which separate just don't feel that helpful anymore. Um, the sense of creating something rather than just consuming an, an experience, and the, the valuable um, opportunity to create sacred space. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about Life Together? Sure. So some of you may know Life Together, which was started by Arrington Chambliss, another wonderful HDS grad, and is right here in the Boston area. And this is an Episcopal co-living space, which is very centered on social justice in the world, but internally is just a remarkable opportunity for people to live in intentional community and really focus on deepening their spiritual practice and that ever sort of constant and challenging work of being in relationship in that kind of intimate space where you really have the opportunity to live your religion. And who <laughs> um, does the dishes? And who <laughs> does the dishes? So thematically with life together. Ooh, yeah, there we go. Um, so definitely the emphasis on spiritual practice that's really, um, in this space, you have a lot of intentionality and specificity around that, where you get to kind of craft your own sense of what spiritual practice is to you and be supported and challenged in that by the others in your community. The real effort at peace building, Life Together, is becoming a model that is being used not only within its own denomination, but across denominations for its work in this, in this field. The social justice that sort of um, is anchored in the particular passions of the residents so that they can really spearhead initiatives, but then it's also more broadly shared. You have a sense of being part of something. And what we've termed modern monasticism here, but which is part of a broader trend that we are seeing of people really, really craving this idea of being in some way um, set, set aside so that they can take time and then also engaged. So as Casper said, it's, it's some of these very ancient yearnings and practices that are now just being reformed for the, the context in which we find ourselves. Yeah, so just like in my joint degree, I would go from a, um, uh, uh, gosh, what's the, I'm totally blanking on the class. Medieval, no, yeah, well, I went from an <laughs> econometrics class to kind of um, a medieval theology uh, and mysticism. Now we're on the phone with the president of the UCC denomination and then the brand manager for SoulCycle. Yeah. So it's, it's a very unusual situation to be in. Literally back to back. That's literally back to back calls last week. Um, but we now find ourselves as a kind of bridging between these two very different worlds who have so much to learn from each other. And uh, we'll graduate in May and, and hopefully be able to, to continue that work uh, here at HDS. So thanks for listening. We'll, we'll go sit down and let Derek lead us. Yeah. Yes, exactly. See what I mean? Um, wow. So, uh, so much. It's, it is one thing, you know, a very time-tested rule to follow the energy. It is another thing to be the energy, and to do both is amazing. Uh, congratulations on all that you've done. Thank really. You. There's a space that I want to define um, and, and focus in on, and it is 
it is a very peculiar and special space. I, I find your work, you know, it's engaging and challenging. Uh, it is certainly um, challenging to, uh, you know, custodians of the present order. Um, there is something more. A lot of people in the room are probably wondering, is there something less? You know, in, in that gap between the more and less, what, um, what exists in that, in that space? And so I wanted to ask a few questions about um, what you've found, what the leaders of these communities are looking for, and then if I, if I could, I want to ask some questions about uh, what the implications are for uh, Harvard Divinity School, in your view. So just first, um, and, a, and a broader thought as well, that a lot of what is challenging about your work is this uh, very reasonable suggestion that we've, maybe we've got the categories wrong. You know, mm -hmm. there, we've, we've divided the world into secular and religious, denominational, non-denominational. You're, you're finding hybrids forming that are not respectful of these dimensions, and that's fascinating. Anyway, um, so let's talk first about how we gather and then something more. In that first publication, um, you document the soul cycles, CrossFits, um, dinner parties of the world, and you talk about how when you found them, you asked them about whether they were baking into their models that something more that you suspected might be there. What was their, what have been their reactions to that question? Uh, you, you said they, there was a little bit of a recoil. Talk about that. Well, perhaps, I mean, the, the most uh, agrarious kind of hell no response, if I can be so bold, was from SoulCycle, which is a spinning class, you know, a, a very popular phenomenon, started in New York, now across the US. The name is SoulCycle. <laughs> so, <laughs> So we asked, the, you know, the woman. And who, the motto uh, is "Find your soul." Find your soul <laughs> on the website. It's on the walls. So we said, "Well, wh what is a soul? What you do know? you mean by what soul? What do you mean?" Well, it's more a brand concept. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was just—it was so remarkable how ill at ease that organization was, even though they were using this language. They released an app through which you could book your spin class, and they had a little video promotion for this new app. And they had a hired a gospel choir um, and rewrote the song to be Oh Appy Day. And it was, we showed it at a, in a Soul Cycle studio <laughs> with all of the gospel singers at, in with on the, the boardroom, yeah. you know, clapping away. We showed this at a conference of Methodist bishops who were kind of just, there was, were it, visceral it gaps. was so wrong. You know. um, <laughs> it is so deeply disappointing at some level. So, yeah. so there was, but that, you know, to, to her credit, this was a year and a half ago when, yeah. when we spoke with them, um, with lovely Gabby at SoulCycle. And um, she was just very, very uh, ill at ease with this idea that they were religious. Literally three weeks ago when we spoke to her again, she said, oh yes, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's about uh, the things that really matter. Um, we have a real sense of, yes, we're kind of religious in what we're doing. We're really trying to give people an opportunity to reflect and focus on what's most important to them. And so she had, she had really changed her tune in terms of her articulation of, of what it meant. She even suggested, you know, when I drop my kids off um, at the Jewish day school, I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm judged a lot about being a bad Jew. And I would like to host um, a workshop for religious leaders in our hospitality program. We want to take, uh, 
you know, we want to take presidents of denominations through our hospitality program. So she had really- The art of radical welcome. The art of radical welcome, which we thought, well, isn't religion supposed to be really good at that? So it's, it's interesting. Some of them, you know, have really shifted. I mean, others like Lenin were very on top of it, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, just to, to kind of add to the Soul Cycle conversation, there is, I think, something even in that year and a half that we've been in conversation with Gabby has, has shifted, where now, even from a branding standpoint, she knows that when there's an article about Michelle Obama worshiping at the Church of Soul Cycle, which is done glibly, that it actually contributes to their brand, that their association, even if it's tongue-in-cheek with religion, is, is a helpful one as opposed to a harmful one. And so in that, there's also something where there's, open, there's opened up in a very short period of time these kinds of considerations, which we found with Greg Glassman of CrossFit as well, where there's a kind of leaning into the idea that this is a place where people get to explore and somehow articulate their, their values. Um, but it's certainly true that in, in many cases, among the groups that we had already gotten to know, even a year and a half ago, they were already very much willing to understand their work through the lens of at least spirituality, if not religion. And I think the longer that we know them, the more that conversation deepens. I'm thinking of at the November gathering that we hosted, um, you know, we brought in a, a Presbyterian minister and a, a Baptist lay minister to kind of share their story. And at the end, um, one of the, the, the executive of a maker space where people can get together and solder and create these incredible art projects said, you know, I grew up and I always wanted to be a priest and now I kind of realize I am one in some way. And so it was really lovely to be able to reflect back to them the incredible ministerial role that they're already playing in, in the communities that they lead. Um, so you had about 50 of the leaders of these organizations come to HDS last fall some coming with that sense of recoil and some perhaps oddly, strangely drawn to this place. It somehow it made sense for them. What were they looking for from each other, from you? What do they need? What do the leaders of these communities lack that would really help them to flourish? Well, I think we had uh, some sus suspicions about that, but as we've gotten to know them better and spoken to them since that event, we've really unearthed what feels like a deeper yearning for spiritual practice than we were prepared for. And one of the ways that that manifested in a, in a personal story was someone sharing that the one thing they did differently after this gathering was that they started taking walks around the lake near their home and looking at people lovingly. And when we asked, well, what happened after that? They said, well, I stopped after three weeks. And it sort of points to the fact that there's a sense of hesitancy, what we've been thinking about as a sort of spiritual insecurity for a lot of these people, where there's not very much cultural permission in the circles they're in to even open up a conversation that would include articulating something like that. Interesting. The idea that they would set about intentionally taking walks so as to look at people lovingly. I, this is just like so far from the regular categories of concern yeah. that, would, that would operate in their lives. So it, it, it begs the question about what could be done in order to contribute, I think, especially vocabulary. This is something that comes up with Casper and me all the time is here we have mapped all of these communities and we don't even have a name for them. We don't even have a field per se that we are 
in uh, because we called it how we gather in part just to create a container that would be capacious enough for all of them to sit inside comfortably. And that may be enough at the moment, but we see both in the way the communities come together and in the individual's lives that they are significantly lacking in words that feel uh, up to the job of articulating what they're going for and also, at least at the present moment, that aren't for them utterly baggage laden in a way that makes them impossible to use. You just caused a flutter in the heart of every academic in the room who said, hey, that's what we do. Yeah. Can I just add to that as well, Derek? Because there's also a very practical dimension to this. Yeah. You know, in my meaning-making seminar yesterday, which we take concurrently to our field education um, kind of experiences out in the world, we were talking about boundaries a lot in ministry and the, and the need you know, for, the, for those kind of um, reflections. And none of these people had ever engaged really in those kind of questions. And so a lot of them were coming with real horror stories of situations that had arisen in their communities. Mm -hmm. um, one dear friend of mine uh, who had set up this wonderful um, organization that brought kind of older mentors and younger people together um, to, to kind of learn intergenerationally in this really lovely uh, international um, thing called campfires. Um, she'd invested a whole lot of money into it and, and it had been going for three years. And in the middle of the third year, the, someone came forward and said that um, she had been sexually assaulted by one of these mentors. And she, you know, my, my friend was totally unprepared on what do you do in this kind of situation. And she did her best and bungled it a little bit, but it ended up turning into such a furore, understandably, that the whole organization shut down. And so there's these kind of critical learning experience of, well, what's important in ministry? What's important in leading a community of meaning and intimacy, um, which none of these leaders right. have really been prepared for in their way. They're great at branding and business planning, but not always so great and on the other side. And they're meeting real needs. They're meeting real needs. So these all organizations of these, are flourishing. Exactly, so all these, these situations do come up. So that's a, that's a real opportunity, we think, in terms of hopefully a role that we can play in connecting them to resources, but also for a place like HDS to, to kind of be a training ground for, for these kind of leaders. Um, so if we could shift to your second uh, inquiry uh, in something more where you're looking at uh, organizations that are in some way um, wouldn't at all be surprised by <laughs> the identification yes. with the label religious, but there is something that they are perhaps shifting from or, or want to be less than or different from. Um, uh, I don't know if this is uh, correct, but in my reading of your work, um, the organizations that look m that look most like traditional church are the ones that are having the hardest time. Like Sunday Assembly, if it's not talking out of school, you you indicate in your book that they're having a difficult time scaling the organization, sorting it out. Is it true that um, the closer that you are are riding to that traditional mm -hmm. structure, the harder it is to differentiate yourself? I'm not sure I agree. I don't know. I'll. This is the great thing of working in a partnership. You never know what the other person's <laughs> going to say. <laughs> so I have an opinion. <laughs> but well, I wonder if I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about the student group that Casper and I co-founded oh, yes. here at HDS okay. because I think we've learned something there that hopefully will tie pretty directly to the question you're asking. So Casper and I started a group called the HDS Religious Nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S, and that's you know our gesture to this. Again, very empty sort of language, but language that's hopefully capacious enough to incorporate a, a number of people who don't otherwise have 
representation in the student groups here on campus. Um, and one of the great surprises of that experience for us has been that so many people who participate in the religious nuns actually do have very robust spiritual lives and even affiliations that they might adhere to, but that they're not, um, that, that they seem to enjoy having a place that they can come together where they can both experience each other's practices and engage in conversation around them and that they can, th that there's an assumption of a diversity of worldview and that there's no part of the goal of that group to achieve intellectual unity around a worldview. And so there, there's this kind of constant, um, constant invitation to bring in that which is inspiring and grounding in one's own life and to invite the others into seeing and appreciating and experiencing that uh, without any, without any idea that down the line we'll all become part of that one tradition together. So uh, when you ask about the, the shape of things, I think there's, there's something to be said, and this was a helpful uh, distinction that was made at this Methodist gathering we went to between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What we're seeing in a lot of these more secular communities is that they're united around the, the shared practice. And that's what we've tried to do in the nuns as well, is that you come together to participate in a shared sort of spiritual experience uh, that every every week is different. And in, in other cases, that looks like every week it being the same, right? The workout of the day or what you, and, and CrossFit has even, there are folks who have started CrossFit faith where you have a spiritual workout of the day <laughs> alongside your, your burpees and whatnot. Um, but I think less so than the shape of church, it seems like more there's a resistance to having a creed as the threshold mm -hmm. for belonging. And that when, and, and so there may be something about the shape of church that, that leads to that expectation, mm -hmm. that this is a place that is alienating to me because it will expect this thing of me that I can't adhere to, et cetera. Yeah. But what do you think? Well, I, I'm thinking of one case study which may be familiar with you. Nadia Boltz-Weber, a very uh, kind of prominent Lutheran pastor, fabulous woman in Denver, Colorado, whose community, the House for All Saints and Sinners, is a very traditional church in many ways, you know. Um, but the way she does it is different. So, uh, you know, liturgy is literally led from everywhere in the space. There's blessings of beer and pets. Uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, people talk about Nadia being Lutheran enough for all of us. So actually all sorts of people who identify with all sorts of um, faith traditions are part of the community. And it's, it, it's really about the, the tone of the community, I would say, rather than the shape of it. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a little vague. Well, and in that idea that she's Lutheran enough for all of us, that this is something I think we've seen consistently. We're seeing it somewhat in, in non-denominational and evangelical communities as well, where it's certainly not watered down. This right. is not like, okay, we'll do watered down sort of mainline Christianity and not really define it. It's, it's often hyper-specific even to the point of personal. So you have the idea that this is Nadia's personal faith, and she is leading this congregation, and you are invited to participate. And I'm suddenly reminded, we have a wonderful uh, community uh, director of religious and spiritual life, Carrie Maloney, in the back, who I think models this with the noon services here at HDS, because for a long time we had that kind of slowly being watered down uh, Wednesday service until we were saying, well, that doesn't work. Let's let everyone do what's real for them, and we'll rotate that every week which I think is working fabulously well. And so I'm just making that connection in my head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, 
uh, dislocation of having a uh, phone call with the head of the UCC and then moving on to uh, Soul cycle, maybe. Yeah. Soul cycle, yeah. Um, what do you counsel? I assume that when uh, you reach out to established <laughs> denominations or vice versa, they're looking, they're, they're essentially saying, Casper uh, and Angie, help us, you know, we want some of what's in the water over there. What, what, what's your advice, what, what's your prognosis for the ability of established denominations to change, to be able to capture some of the energy that's being expressed in your work? One of the things that really surprised us when working with established traditions was the amount of pain and shame a lot of the leaders feel. Because the numbers are dwindling, because there's this sense of doom and, and failure, there's a, real, um, there's, there's a real sense of loss and grief. And that can play out in different ways. So when you have innovators within the same system coming up with bright ideas and cool websites, Sometimes that, that sense of frustration and grief kind of plays out to dismiss those innovators or to belittle them or to somehow not play this encouraging, you know, loving role. And so one of the things that we've really found is that the role that we can play as kind of loving outsiders is to tell a different story. Um, so instead of pointing to those dwindling figures and, you know, less people in the pews and lower rates of affiliation, is to, is to point to where there is this longing for community and where there is religious depth in unexpected places. And to ask, well, what is the gift that you, as the UMC, as the Methodist Church, what is the gift that you can give? Well, gosh, in your you know, history, there's this fabulous practice of small groups and this great sense of accountability. Remember those tokens that you had when the Methodist Church started? You know, where literally you had to earn a token to be part of the community. That, that, that accountability practice, which frankly probably isn't a good idea nowadays, but that, you know, that sense of, of holding each other to a high standard, actually, that's what people want in some way. So there are these unexpected gifts that often, because denominational leaders are so within their own system that sometimes they're just not able to recognize. So that's a big role that we found ourselves playing. But practically, it's also about convening them together to support those innovators within their system. So um, we're just in conversation with three or four uh, denominations ac across, tr across Christian, Jewish, uh, and other traditions to, to work together to support innovators within their own systems because they realize that you can't just do it within the UCC. You need to be working with others. Um, so that's an exciting role that we hope to play. Hopefully we won't be uh, drowned out in the interdenominational politics, but uh, we'll, we'll hope that goes well. <laughs> Yeah, it's been heartening to see that there is a real desire among the leaders of these denominations to be of service to the folks who are imagining and reimagining what is possible within their own context. And because there's a disconnect right now, I think that's part of what they are seeking from us as these loving outsiders is if we have the ability to sort of see what's being yearned for among the innovators and what gifts these traditions have to offer them and to see maybe where whatever fissure might be occurring that's not allowing those two to, to, act, to be mutually uh, life-giving, that, that you know, we're trying to, in whatever way, be a little bit of a bridge there. Be wonderful, um, I'm sh there's an abundance of things you can study, but to do case studies of those organizations yeah. because they are obviously, they're going against a tide that, that history would suggest would be difficult for them mm -hmm. to achieve. Yeah. Um, last question and then I, I do want to open it up. Um, and I want to ask for you to be uh, unwisely honest in a room full of deans and, and teachers and 
Um, how? <laughs> David, close your ears. Yeah. Literally, right? <laughs> how, how has your HDS education? How, how has what HDS provides supported you and advanced you in your work? And what's missing? What What is the something more that HDS could or should be providing that would really help to support you in your work? And again, as loving insiders, yes, perhaps. Absolutely. I, I can go first. Okay. I mean, Angie and I say to each other all the time, I wouldn't be doing this without you. Uh, because, first of all, I don't know where I would have met Angie <laughs> or the other classmates. You know, I run a Harry Potter as a sacred text group with Vanessa Zoltan, who's another graduate of HDS. The, the, the classmates that I found here who were interested in the same questions, who had the same level of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> competence and insight, <laughs> um, but who, who were passionate about the same things as I am. That's, that's just been such a blessing. Um, I have loved taking um, independent study classes with different professors, uh, Stephanie Purcell and Dudley Rose particularly, who, even though they are firmly within a tradition, could totally understand the questions I was asking and were 100% invested in me learning more and, and being better of service. So uh, in that way, I think you know, the, 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 the faculty of ministry particularly for me have been instrumental. Um, I'm glad I did a joint degree with the Kennedy School. I was, uh, you know, I took uh, entrepreneurial finance and leadership with Ron Heifetz and, um, you know, management of nonprofit classes, which have been incredibly useful for me. Uh, I've ended up taking class at the Sloan um, School at MIT, at um, BU Theology. You know, the, the, the resources for us as students are embarrassingly wealthy. Um, Angie and I have both been part of a, a, a cross uh, graduate school program called the, the Graduate Student Leadership Initiative which brought us together with engineers and people at the law school and people at the medical school, the dental school. I didn't even realize we had a dental school. Um, but, but those relationships have been so, so useful. So I love that that's also reflected in the, in the HDS student body. There's such diversity. For me, the things that um, I think I see as opportunities for the future of HDS, um, these, these people who we have been building relationships with who have, um, who are, who are, I think, doing ministry in my language, um, would never have considered the Divinity School. They wouldn't even have heard of it. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the core offering of what this institution offers is exactly what they need. And a number of folks who came to that November gathering are applying to HDS <laughs> because they realize like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for. Even, you know, uh, just the fact that we have a racial justice and healing initiative where we can engage in these questions of racial justice, which are, are grounded also in, in the sense of something more, or this, this uh, process of healing, that we're able to have the conversations here that people want to have and often don't know how. Um, we're able to build the skills that you know, we need to do this work. So I would love to see us talking about what we offer to the world in a way that people who need it can hear it, which you know, sometimes I start to think, well, maybe do we need to change the name Divinity School? But then I think, oh, no. Actually, it's really important to hold on to that. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I yeah, I'll, I'll, Angie, you'll say something more intelligent. Oh, hardly. <laughs> Never. Um, well, very similarly, I think, and Dudley, I was singing your praises earlier, but the, the fact that I would be invited into this place, one of the, one of the catchphrases used by one of the leaders of the communities was that he's providing a home for unicorns without a home. <laughs> and there's been a little bit of that experience since being at HDS of just these 
absolutely glowing human beings that I've gotten to be in relationship with and in collaboration with, uh, which has, been, of course, case in point, but has also extended beyond the partnership that I've had with Casper. So the, the fact of the openness of HDS, I talk about how radical HDS is all the time, how the fact that it has self-consciously created a microcosm of the world's religious diversity and then asks us to engage with each other productively within that is, it's, now of course it's something people don't know, <laughs> and I know that you're working on more people knowing that, but it is definitely something that could not be more important and relevant and, uh, and imperative at this moment. So the fact that, that it really is an honest promise that wh whoever you are, if these are the questions you're interested in engaging with, you have a shot at being part of this community, regardless of what your particular affiliation or lack of affiliation may be, that I, I just am, am constantly um, grateful for. So that then definitely goes to the other part of telling that story uh, better and perhaps differently so as to reach the many, many people who I think really uh, are, are right in a position where this training could not be more valuable. And yes? No, no, continue. <laughs> I've suddenly had a thought. Okay. So uh, I think that does speak to one thing that I, I think, like Casper, did did desire more of was the specific tangible training piece. And to that point about the sort of orthopraxy, I was just in a conversation at, uh, about, about the student organizations here and how that is still something that we do on the side of our curriculum, curricular commitments and our field ed and how that is so much of what has been of value to me in this experience. And it would be interesting to think about what ways that could be more incorporated into into the the things we get credit for here uh, because at, like Casper I definitely got a lot of my training either from the work we did in student groups like the religious nuns or whatnot where we were kind of improvising and making up what it is to be in spiritual community together as well as taking classes at the business school and the law school and going to other campuses and to try to get because I talk about the MDiv degree in some way as being vocational. You know, it's a three-year terminal degree, and so in that way, it's kind of like a law degree. <laughs> or, you know, and so what are all of the pieces of that training that uh, that that are currently needed? You know, it just it's a challenging thing to be constantly adapting that program to to fit into the context that we find ourselves in. And for, for me, it doesn't mean not engaging with tradition or engaging yeah, with death. Yeah, not at all. You know, I've loved taking Kevin Madigan's ecclesial history class because that's where I was able to make the connection between these new co-housing communities and the monastic movement right. of the 13th, 14th century. However, I'm the one who's putting those two together. And I think there is an opportunity in the curriculum to say like, well, what can we practically learn from this phenomenon of the you know, desert mothers and fathers or the, this Buddhist scripture and how we have engaged with it? That might speak to people today. So there's a kind of layer of, of interpretation that could be added on, which I think would speak to a whole new bunch of people. And it's important to remember that with the, un, with the unaffiliated, while there is sometimes express antagonism or, or an alienation from organized religion, there's also just, a, it's an unknown. There's a, there's a naivete to what that all entails. And so it can be very uh, intimidating mm -hmm. for somebody who wants to pray <laughs> yeah. to know where to go go to learn something about that. And that's something we've encountered again and again as well, is when you can get these very practical, hands-on 
and um, sort of unladen <laughs> uh, new experiences and lessons that people really respond to that. I'm sitting here trying to decide if we were lucky or smart that you landed here, and I'll just, I'll just land on that we were blessed that you landed here. <laughs> um, I, let me open it up to the room, and we've got uh, 10 minutes and some questions. Betsy. I think there's a microphone coming to you. I think I'll be loud enough without it. <laughs> I think we're, we're recording the event, so if, if it's okay. Angie and Casper, first of all, I just want to congratulate you on this seminal moment and this seminal work because I think a lot of these ideas came out yesterday in a council meeting which we had, which was very, very interesting. Um, but I wondered in your research and the work you've done, if you have sensed any hesitancy towards an authoritative text in any of these groups or uh, an amalgam of authoritative texts or a hybrid <laughs> or non-texts or how the text fits in in the authority arrangement of these groups. What, what has been the phenomenology there? Well, I'll speak for myself first. I came into HDS thinking like I'm a total atheist. This Bible stuff is crazy. Uh, you know, it makes zero sense to me. Why are we still engaging with this text? What, what value does it have? Um, and you know, then I started reading a little Richard Raw, and I was like, oh, that's what it means. And I took Introduction to Hebrew Bible, and I, oh, that's the original Hebrew. Well, that reads a little differently. And so I feel like I'm kind of a, a, a data point in that story <laughs> of my own education, um, where, I en where I've ended up now in relation to the kind of the, the Anglican uh, home country that I come from and, and its you know, religious history, I'm like, oh, I, I kind of, you know, I'd kind of be an Anglican now that I understand it. I've committed myself to the Unitarian Universalist world, but I'm very happy where we can engage with the text as much or as little as we like. Um, but I feel like it's, it's, it's a huge, just a massive gap of understanding. And, and it's, frankly, I blame the institutions because it's not the fault of people who have been talked to. Um, so this is a, a big push for us to, to speak to denominations is really understand like actually you've got, you know, uh, we were talking with um, Rabbi uh, Brad Greenstein who leads, um, who's the rabbi for Moshe House, this network of, of Jewish co-living houses. And he said at the retreats that he hosts, he has to um, retranslate kind of the core Jewish prayers so that he's saying, well, actually what this means is it's, it's talking about oneness and, and the unity of all people. Actually, this is talking about the sense of mystery in our world. And suddenly people who would never pray the traditional prayers are saying, oh, oh, that's what well, it means. I'll say that. Oh, <laughs> I can do that. That's, yeah, that's kind of expressing something I feel. So I feel like the, the, the text is definitely not what I'd want people to, to open their doors with and say, like, here, have, have a read. Because it's really a journey that I would say people like me need to go on to understand what that text has to give. Does, does that make sense in some way? K kind of? I'm not certain uh, the core beliefs, um, how everyone can um, coalesce around something that is a core belief if there isn't an attempt at constructing mm. authoritative writings. Mm. Or, um, I mean, I can see where people can hang loosely together for a while, but it seems at some point it becomes dishonest. Yeah, I think we've, we've been finding that there is, 
a desire to maintain the multiplicity of points of entry to a text or to texts even when an individual may take that text to be authoritative in terms of the scripture for their faith. Um, so it's not to say that that is absent or going away on an individual level, but it, at least in the communities that we have been studying, it seems that what is causing them to hang together is not consensus about the authority yeah. of the text. Yeah. That's just, that's just an, an observation. Um, it's not necessarily a prediction. <laughs> Please, Tom. Um, I'll, I'll try to be not indelicate, but um, <laughs> in Go traditional ahead. religion, thinking especially of Christianity, which I know best, we uh, sometimes encounter what I would call the lunatic fringe or uh, occasional sightings of quackery. Uh, have you encountered that in any of... <coughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Wonderfully delicate rendering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh. I mean, I think this, this actually speaks directly to the, the ongoing need for places like HDS. Exactly. <laughs> um, because there is... There is definitely, there's such transition going on and such need going on right now that there, there are these cases of the blind leading the blind that come up uh, with some regularity where people will be like, I, I don't know. There, I, there are plenty of indelicate ways that I could say it as well. Well, I mean, so, so one. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're looking out into the world as one of these leaders and you're right. looking for spirituality, you're more likely to go to Oprah right. than to your local church. Definitely. So the, the tone and the content of what's offered is kind of, oh, let's take this little bit from indigenous traditions and um, let's do some ayahuasca and, you know, it, it, you know, let's go on kind of shamanic journeys. And, and, and you're just like, oh, okay, okay, great that you want to do, you know, want to dive into these questions, but it's... Um, it's done in a really destructive and, and uh, unwise way. And so this is why we're so passionate about engaging with the existing traditions yeah. to, to, to give some depth um, and, and give some context uh, for people to go on that spiritual journey, which who doesn't want that, um, but to yeah. do it with integrity. And it, um, it relates to the question of authoritative texts as well, because I had one conversation with uh, one of these community leaders who said, I was asking him about where, where are your wisdom wells? You know, where do you go to seek a spiritual authority in your life? Burning man. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> in this case, he, he was sort of like, well, you know, people will send me things. Or, uh, you know, he's like, oh, I probably should feel a little bad that I don't have my own library. But honestly, when it's the end of the week, I, I, when it's between the Bhagavad Gita or this mystery novel, I'm probably going to go to the mystery novel because I just am too tired, this kind of thing. Because he feels like it's entirely on him to engage in that exploration if he's going to. And so people often tend to find the low-hanging fruit, but if they're, in this landscape, if they're motivated enough to go find the low-hanging fruit, they're often motivated enough to start something. Mm -hmm. And so then you get people who may be pretty new <laughs> to this whole religious inquiry thing, who are so, their minds are so blown by it really fast that they wanna go bring a whole bunch of other people in with them. And that's where you just have a lot of sort of tender uh, possibilities as far as what can, what can happen, what can go well, what can, what can go in a direction that can be destructive, honestly. So yeah, the, the need, uh, this again speaks to the, the kind of vocabulary gap 
where somehow there's not a perception and I can relate to this. Here I was in New York City and when I went looking for spiritual community, it didn't even occur to me to look to a traditional religion. And that is, is a pretty common thing. And so if people are out looking, they, their, their knee-jerk reaction is like, well, if I go to that church, they're gonna try to make me Lutheran. So I'm gonna go to, to places where I don't feel that there's a kind of imperative that way. We have two minutes left. There was a hand, Ooh. yes, Pam. And you'll be joining us for lunch, I, yes. I take it? Good, yes. so, so we have the, the indelicate conversations Tom can. Yeah. can Please uh, come tell us we're wrong. <laughs> 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 Um, it's been 50 years now since Martin Luther King referenced Sunday mornings in this country as being the most segregated time of our lives. I'm curious as to, um, among the noons, among these emerging communities, if any of them brings forward a more healthy, more inclusive of gender diversity, racial, cultural diversity, economic diversity than traditional churches have been struggling with for 50 years. I don't know much about SoulCycle or CrossFit <laughs> other than it's wicked expensive. Yeah. So which of these communities yeah. are truly inclusive? Yeah, thank you for you that question. That. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, there's a couple of levels at which we'll try and answer that in two minutes. The, fir <laughs> the first is that the, sti the statistics in terms of disaffiliation are skewed towards whiter, more urban, more wealthy. So there's a, there's a general pattern in the data. But in terms of the organizations that we started finding when we were looking at websites and who had a kind of shiny website that fit what we had been looking for, absolutely was overwhelmingly that kind of, that kind of um, dynamic. What we've really loved seeing is that there are communities that are modeling exactly a multiracial, multi-gender, um, multi multi-class uh, multi community, multi-spiritual. And my, our very, very favorite one is the Sanctuaries in Washington, DC, started by our very own uh, Eric Gressley, who graduated, I think, in 2012. Um, he has built something in partnership in a city which is so divided racially. Yeah. Um, something truly extraordinary. And he was so wise that when he, when he started thinking about what would a community look like in DC, he said, if we build it in one place, it's immediately gonna exclude a whole ton of people. So it's gotta be mobile. And he said, well, what is it that a lot of people love to do? Well, everyone has some sense of a creative spirit of, of wanting to express themselves, of being a sort of citizen artist. So the Sanctuaries is a diverse arts community with soul where poets and hip hop artists and photographers collaborate on projects and Indian classical musicians and um, uh, gosh, dancers, also just everyone is encouraged to grow artistically and through that to grow in their religious tradition. So you have people who attend um, their local mosque and who are part of the sanctuaries community. And you just look at their website and you see a true representation of the DC city. You have people who work at the White House, who, you know, uh, white wealthy people who immigrated into, into the city. You have people who grew up in Anacostia and Southwest, Southeast who um, you know, had, a, had a lot of community, but not a lot, of, a lot of opportunity. And these transplants who had a lot of opportunity, but not a lot of community. And Eric has found a way to make both of those work together. And people love each other there. They, <laughs> they, re they really do. I was lucky enough to do my field education placement in DC with Eric as part of my um, like a, a summer uh, placement, which was, which was so eye-opening to me because that was the first time 
that I'd been part of a community like that. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not part of any religious community here, really, in Cambridge. I'm normally a member of First Parish. I apologize, Dan McCannon is sitting in the front row. Um, very embarrassed. He but, will get even with you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but there's nothing like that. It's very rare. It takes extraordinary leadership, and I will bet my bottom dollar that one of the reasons that Eric could build something like that is because he had an MDiv degree, and he'd engaged in these conversations. Um, so it's, it's absolutely still, you know, mm -hmm. the, the most divided hour in America is, is, is still true for a lot of these communities. What's the name of that community? It's called the Sanctuaries, DC, yeah. I believe we are adjourning uh, to lunch now. We have copies of Casper and Angie's publications uh, for you to take away. Uh, I think following lunch we'll have them set, set out. Uh, their emails are in there, so you can continue this conversation with them. Uh, and if uh, there has been a better display of the heritage of Harvard Divinity School and its investment in the future than these past two days, I'm not aware of that time. Thank you very much for your work Thank and you. we look forward. <laughs>